The following episode of Bookmark was first broadcast February 20th, 2024. Every day, every day, every day. Good afternoon and welcome to Bookmarked on KZSN.org, your true community radio station, where today the book under discussion is Shadows of the Workhouse by Jennifer Wirth, and my guest is Jennifer Cabay. Jennifer is a writer, the author of the young adult novel Minder, a librarian, the admin of the San Marcos Public Library's lively virtual book club, and it's I was going to ask you, it stayed, the virtual book club is almost as lively now as it was during COVID. Mm -hmm. Is is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Tremendous success. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It really works. Um, So you get reviews and all. Okay. She is an avid, eclectic, and astute reader and a confirmed Anglophile. She's a regular on the Mop Tops on the King, which uh, a rare uh, syndicated show that we we run here Mondays at 9, where she does, from time to time, the McCartney Diaries. Anything you want me to add about you? No, I think that covers it. Okay. Uh, Jennifer Lee Worth, the author, is a nurse and midwife, or was a nurse and midwife practicing in poverty-stricken East End of London in the 1950s. She left nursing in 1973 to pursue her musical interest and had a whole career as a musician, which kind of fascinates me. Much later, she wrote a best-selling trilogy about her experiences, called The Midwife in 2002, this one in 2005, and Farewell to the East End in 2009. And, as you probably noticed, the very long-running, still-running television series called The Midwife is based on her books. Do you know anything else you want to add about her? Yeah, um, I learned that her daughter, Susanna, found a manuscript, an unpublished manuscript during lockdown, and she edited it and published it posthumously. Um, so mm-hmm. Jennifer Worth has another book called Toffee Apples and Quail Feathers. It's more of the same, basically, about London's East End in the 50s. Oh. And apparently it's really good. Oh, okay. I so think more, now, more now, now that I know what a, what a fine pro stylist she is, yeah. you know, I will certainly maybe look into that one. Uh, Okay, let me, tr- let me try a summary, as I usually do. Uh, Shadows of the Workhouse is divided into three sections. Workhouse Children, The Trial of Sister Monica Joan, and The Old Soldier. The first and third focus less on the life of Nonata's house, where Jennifer works, and more on uh, memorable people that she encounters there, and even those sections even include some chapters from their points of view, uh, alternating with her first-person narration. The second section is more about Nonata's house, uh, and it's a portrait of 90-year-old Sister Monica Joan and her habit of filching small items from the market, and she gets into trouble over that. Um, taken together, the sections give you a profound impression of the hardships faced and largely overcome by poor people in England, particularly in London, from the late 19th to the mid-20th centuries, because we get the histories of these people uh, whose childhood goes back to the era of the workhouse. Um, I think it's more of a social history. I haven't read the previous one, have you? 
Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. I, th- I get the feeling, though, from reviews and things that I looked at, uh, that the previous book was a little more episodic and was more focused on the life of Nonata's house. Yeah, but I also want to point out that I that these books are standalones, so you mm. can read one and don't have to have oh, yeah. read the other. Yeah. Because a lot of people, when, I, when we talked about this one online, people were like, well, do I need to read the first one first? I'm like, no, you do not. No. So. No. Uh, okay, uh, full disclosure, uh, I have seen every episode of Call the Midwife. But you not, right? No, I've watched like the first two seasons, and yeah. I haven't seen it in at least ten years. Okay. So, so, but I will try to do. I mean, this this book got uh, undeservedly, I think, but understandably overwhelmed by the series, don't you think? Yes. I mean, uh, you know, it it really is, and it was a bestseller in England, and I can I could sort of see the whoever created the series going, wow, you know, this is wonderful. Let's let's get this on but television. Having- and having sorry to deviate, but like having read it though, I think it the show stays very true oh, to yes. the book. Yes, like the casting, that the, mm. the flavor, the the pacing mm-hmm. of everything. I think they nailed it. I do too. I yeah. I, I was gonna. I was gonna mention that later, but I'll mention it now. I mean, absolutely. Little things like in the in the credits. I don't know if they're still doing it, but you're you're seeing a shot down a street, and you don't realize until a huge freighter goes by at the end that the street ends on the dock and there you know and that just that image yeah I think they the kind of atmosphere that she creates uh and that must have inspired the the people who made the show mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. It, it yeah it really is it's maybe not every single detail but it's certainly the feeling mm-hmm. um, so we got this as as every time you're my <laughs> guest <laughs> We have this system in which uh, Jennifer sends me a pic- picture of her to-be-read stack, and I pick out of there uh, the book that I think would be most interesting. I'm glad I chose this one. Um, but why was? how did it get into your to-be-read to stack? Well, I just want to say real quick, I think our system is super fun. And yes. And I think it's it's a fair way that we choose our books. Um, my mother-in-law read this like 10 years ago, mm-hmm. and she was very, very moved by it. And literally for 10 years, she's been trying to get me to read it Mm -hmm. and so I finally you know and I I kept putting it off because I knew I was gonna love it Mm -hmm. so I kind of squirreled it away as I tend to do with things I know I'm gonna enjoy yeah like it's a safety Mm -hmm. Um, but for some reason it just was I felt like it was time so anyway Mm -hmm. oh good yeah all right well then I'm I'm glad I picked it I will say that she checked on me a couple of times since she knew I was reading it she's like are you enjoying it how's it going how's it going and then she told me like last week she said that the, the characters, some some of the characters in this book have stuck with her mm-hmm. all these years. Like, she still thinks about their stories. Hmm. And I think I understand that. Yeah. So. Is it, I mean, I know she's uh, she's British. Is it mm-hmm. part of her background? Very much in some so. Ways? Very yeah. much so. Yeah, I didn't know. Okay. Um, the first section covers three people connected with the fictional Nonatus house, which is... Um, her, as she explains in the beginning, her re-fictional version of the community of St. John the Divine, where uh, Jennifer Worth actually worked as a nurse and a midwife. And the three people are Jane, who is kind of a, oh, they say there's, she's not a nurse and she's not a cleaner. She's more like kind of an orderly or something like that, right? I mean, she helps out. Um, Peggy, who is a cleaner that comes in sometimes, and Peggy's brother, Frank, who is a fishmonger and who sells them fish. Mm-hmm. So they know these three people. And 
all of these people were together in the workhouse as children. And Jennifer introduces the characters, and then she provides a history of the workhouse as an institution. Um, <laughs> yeah. Did you want to comment on that already, or shall I read some? I'm just thinking it's a case for birth control, you know? Like, I kept thinking, like, this is such a case for birth control. <laughs> Like oh yes the population explosion and what are we gonna do with all these extra people where are they gonna go like mm-hmm. so much so much of this happened as a result of the population explosion a population explosion in the late 19th early 20th century when the workhouses mm-hmm. started like in the beginning yeah that was you know the need for them yeah. resulted from that yeah and they talk also about uh migration which you get in the story of the old soldier at the end i mean how the family is People get displaced off of farms because of, oh, I'm trying to, the Enclosure Act, which is, mm. and uh, don't don't have work and go to the cities to find work and the cities get overcrowded. Well, the farms and, couldn't feed the amount of people needing the food. Yeah. I mean, anyway. Uh, she, she says some interesting things about, part of this book, it seems to me like it's almost kind of a reflection on how do how do how can you do social welfare and what are the possibilities and problems and I don't know is that reading is that making making it too thematic? You know what I mean. I mean she's thinking about um, in some ways she she is a little she looks at both sides of the creation of the workhouses. Victorian England was not, she says, the period of complacency and self satisfaction that is so often portrayed in the media. It was also a time of growing awareness of the divide between the rich and poor and of a social conscience, which, of course, we, you know, we just did a reading of uh, A Christmas Carol, which is all about that. Um, Thousands of good and wealthy men and women, usually inspired by Christian ideals, were appalled by the social divide, saw that it was not acceptable, and devoted themselves to tackling the products head on. They may not have always been successful, but they brought many evils to light and sought to remedy them. Uh, and then she says that it can be argued that the workhouse system was the first attempt at social welfare in this country. I think she does a really good job of presenting both sides of it. Oh. You know, it was born of a noble idea, but it also, like, illustrated the evil that some men do and are capable of. Yeah. You know, what happens to, to humans yes. that aren't under control while yeah. living together? Yeah, and and also one of the things she says there's um, there's no uh, dis- discrimination between uh, people who are de- men, women, children, people who are the chronically infirm, the children, the mentally disabled, as well as able-bodied men and women who are unemployed and therefore destitute, and so they were all under one roof. Um, the uh, in early years, none of the staff had training or qualifications. This could not be expected because there was no president, but the unfortunate result was that it opened the floodgates to all sorts of petty mm. dictators who enjoyed wielding power. Mm-hmm. Like I always say, there's certain people you shouldn't give a clipboard to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, but, yeah, we yeah. saw that very clearly. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah, there are horrible abuses. Um, 
So what did you think of her overall? You didn't think she was being, you thought she was being pretty well balanced and not too kind or too harsh. On... I think she was telling things as they were. Yeah. I think she, she clearly um, demonstrates, that, you know, where else were these people going to go? They would have died or frozen to death or starved on the streets. So yes, the conditions weren't that awesome, but they were fed and there was some basic education provided to the children that otherwise would have had none. Yeah. Um, so those things are definitely, and it seems like it was the humans themselves, the people that worked there that sort of poisoned the well, as it were, the people in charge who were a little bit sadistic or controlling. Yeah. It was, it was, so it wasn't the idea that was bad. It was like the, the people. Yeah. And the people were underpaid and not trained and uh, right. all of that. Uh, Again, she, she presented both sides, and I and I think she did it well. Mm-hmm. And and I think th- through the stories that she told and, you know, that we'll talk about, even those people will acknowledge there were two sides. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the stories, uh, the first, she narrates some of the chapters in the, the first section by, uh, uh, from the point of view of Jane, the adult Jane is chronically nervous and incompetent. She drops things. She, it takes her two or three times as long to do any task as it does anyone else. Uh, she's terribly anxious. She's always worried about, did she do the right thing? And we learn through this really harrowing thing that she is severely beaten and punished and isolated because she insists that her wealthy daddy is going to come and take her away. And then she takes, a, when a, uh, a benefactor visits, the, visits the, the workhouse, she thinks he is her daddy. Um, and just passers, passers-by, I love, love, I love being in this, in this uh, storefront. Anyway, um, and, and, and for that, she's, she's punished. But what did you think of, you know, as a writer... You know, what did you think of the, th- what she's doing with the narrative? I mean, it's Jennifer's point of view, and then I, I read one reviewer, only one cranky reviewer, who, who didn't like that and was like, oh, well, then we're, you know, how, how are we in the, in the consciousness of these other people and so on? Well, first of all, this is narrative nonfiction. Yeah. So, I mean, and it's like an excellent example of narrative nonfiction. The, the, the author has a little bit of license. She, she knew these people. Um, I take no issue with her quotations around what these people, you know. Well, she, well, she's not just—I mean, she's not just quoting. She's in their heads. giving, giving you, you know, Jane's, Jane's actual not not first person, but uh, third person limited and omniscient from Jane's point sure. of view for some of the chapters, not all. I, I well, I want to say that I was so like enraptured with. <laughs> Jane's story really stuck with me because I literally, this is how how Jane was as a child was exactly how I was as a child. And I don't mean beaten like mm-hmm. or anything, but like I was eternally hopeful and headstrong and prone to fantasy and like exactly how this child was. Mm-hmm. I, that is exactly how I was. So I was just sucked into this character wow. and her story. And I felt, it made me really like, I don't know, it really tugged at me because, um, Having been that way myself, I think that the author really captured this character type. It must have been very hard then to read her being deliberately squashed. Uh, yes, and, and I that you know, too. Uh, misunderstood. I'm glad nobody squashed you. <laughs> they tried. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it's just, and back then, you know, we didn't have definitions for children who were outside the box. You were either headstrong and obstinate and you didn't listen, mm-hmm. or you, you know, or you got, you got punished for being different. Yeah. And so I, I can't imagine, and I loved how she just kept going. She, no matter what happened to her, she still believed. Mm-hmm. Whether she was wrong or right, she still believed, and it kept her going. Yeah. You know? So, I, you know, it was a good, for me, it was a really, it was a way it sucked me into the book. Yeah. And it certainly, it certainly did that. And I, I didn't even, I don't know, it seemed smooth, smooth enough that we just, you know, it's like, like you might do in a film or something and just move into somebody's consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, uh, anything, 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 other comments about Jane's particular story? Um, Jane, it goes back into uh, the kind of the some of the Nonatus House stuff is almost comic, and Jane gets a happy ending, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. you know. Uh, or did you not want to spoil that? Yeah. It seems to me. I think I think it was probably a Nonatus House episode. I'm not sure I remember correctly, but um, anyway. So, anything else about Jane? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. She does something similar when she tells the story of the siblings, Frank and Peggy. Um, they are sent to the workhouse when their mother dies, and at the age, ages of six and three, they're separated. They're in the the little kids section, and then when he gets old old enough to work, they take him away. Uh, and then you get we get a long sequence, kind of from his point of view. Uh, He's in the boys' section of the workhouse, and then a, f- a fishmonger comes along and says, I need a boy to help me. And he takes Frank, and Frank becomes first an assistant, and then a fishmonger or a, what's the, what's the other word? A coster. A coster, yeah, because he sells other stuff as well, uh-huh. uh, and, manages, and manages to make money. And eventually, nine years later, he takes his sister out of the workhouse, and there's a wonderful scene where he, she doesn't, of course, recognize him since they were kids. And, and not he doesn't a, recognize her either. Yeah. There's a feeling. Yeah. Oh, um, man. And, and yeah. one, yeah, um, <laughs> one of the, one of the moments when, again, when the narrator is in someone else's consciousness, this is, uh, he has a kind of epiphany. Uh, he's, Succeeding more or less as a as a coster, he's a gambler. He drinks and gambles and chases girls and does all the things that the other costers do. Um, and he's kind of he's kind of upset because he's lost a lot of money gambling, but he he always does it. Uh, and then he's just walking away, and he sees uh, ahead of him was a two bit jerk of a little nipper in baggy trousers and shoes down on the uppers, leading a little girl, not yet out of nappies, by the hand. He hated them both. And he looks at them, and the little girl falls down, and her brother comforts her. Um, He picked her up and carried her into a a cord, and Frank saw them no more. Frank stood quite still in the street, suddenly feeling cold. The heat of revenge left him, and a cold uncertainty entered his heart. He shivered and leaned against the wall, feeling unexpectedly dizzy. What was it? Everything seemed so cloudy, so misty. What could it be? He didn't seem to be real anymore. He touched his face and felt tiny, soft arms around his neck. 
He breathed in and could smell the lovely scent of a baby's hair. Stunned, he wanted to run after the boy and the little girl to find out who they were, but they had gone. Had he really seen them? A boy in baggy trousers and a tiny girl with blonde hair, or were they ghosts? He shivered and rubbed his eyes, trying desperately to recall something. But the mist of forgetfulness swirled around, and he could not remember what it was. And he does remember that he has a sister, and she's in the workhouse. I couldn't stop reading. I know. I yeah. Know. So good. Yeah. So, again, someplace where uh, she's in someone else's consciousness, and you don't think that's much of a, that's a liberty or a... I don't think it's a liberty. I think, you know, like I said, it's narrative nonfiction. She's telling a story, and she's getting... To effectively relay these stories, you have to tell what's in the character's head. Yeah. She has right to do that as an author. Oh, she, well, she chooses to tell their stories from in-depth and inside. Yes. I think, and I think because in some ways these are, they're, you know, really good writing is very specific to the person, the character, the time and the place. But in doing that, there's there's some kind of, a magical paradox to that. In that, doing that, it becomes universal or larger. And she's kind of telling the story to me of the history of what it is like to be poor in England mm-hmm. during during this era. Um, what did you make of her? Another another place where she moves into their consciousness is the the very intimate moment they, mm-hmm. yeah, he they are adolescents now, and he. Springs her out, gets her out of the workhouse, uh, manages to make her recognize him as her her brother, uh, and takes her. He's found a place for them to live, and she's so excited that they've got a place to live, and she doesn't have to go back to the workhouse, uh, and then that her wonderful brother has has rescued her, uh, and she I think she remembers his, how he cared for her before, uh, and then uh, they fall into incest, uh, and what. Jennifer's narration says is their union was as inevitable as it was innocent. Okay. So a couple of things. I want to say that leading up to that moment, which I did not know was going to happen, like her descriptions of like their energy and their chemistry, it kind of was like, ew. Like I could feel that like he was looking at her a certain way and she was being him. And objectively, I could stand back and understand it. First of all, these two haven't seen each other in what, nine, ten years. So... That's the first thing. They don't recognize each other, but there must have been chemistry. There must have been that sort of kindred chemistry that could easily be confused for feelings. Yeah. Um, so intellect, like objectively, I understood it, but it still made me a little uncomfortable. Um, so I think that when she says it was an inevitable union, I, okay, I think that had they not been separated... All those years, obviously, that would not have happened. Uh, yeah, I would. I would agree with that. Uh, <clears throat> some, some people. Somewhere, I've read that the incest taboo is really kind of familiarity. You know, you don't. You don't. If you've been with somebody, and I do notice that famous characters of in, uh, char- instances of that, like Lord Byron and so on. Again, there were people who were not together. Uh, I mean, did not grow up together. I mean, apparently, so like cousins being together is fairly commonplace right even Mm -hmm. now which I think is kind of weird but um so so it's swallowable but brother and sister just a little bit too close for my comfort but I understood it and I think that the author did considering 
that it gives you, you know, mm. you know, whatever. It, 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 she did a good job at explaining it without it being gross. Oh, yeah. And she treats it very compassionately. And she even says that it's many, many years later when Frank is very sick, that the one of the, I think it's the, uh, the, the, head, the head nurse, whom I can't, whom I can't remember, uh, Sister... Juliet? Sis, yeah, Sister, uh, Sister Juliet uh, visits their home and notices that there's only one bed and doesn't mm, say anything. Right. You know, which I think is what the camera did in the, if I, re, if I have any member of, memory of the episode, and we are overdue for our first oh, okay. break. Yes. Clean up. Join them on March 2nd. Yeah, I read that. Registered volunteers check in at your watershed headquarters, meet your team leader, grab supplies, and enjoy a free breakfast taco and pizza lunch. Help keep San Marcos beautiful and environment healthy. Event shirts and giveaways are available first come, first serve. You can get more information at txrivers.org. Be there and help keep our city beautiful. Bookmarked is brought to you in part by the Whitliff Collections. Now on exhibition, I Pray You Survive, Riding on the Edge. The Whitliff explores how our best writers have personally confronted life or death situations, from war to pandemics, race riots, and murder, to create their groundbreaking work. On display now at the Whitliff Collections at Texas State University. For more information, please contact us at all right, welcome back to Bookmarked on uh, KCSM.org and KCSM 104.1, True Community Radio for San Marcos, Texas, and the world, where we are talking about uh, Jennifer Worth's memoir, Shadows of the Workhouse, with Jennifer Cabay. Uh, and we were talking particularly about, in this section, uh, in this book, there are some long sections which really kind of recreate the, the life story in some ways of some of the people that mm-hmm. Jennifer knows. And the, the third section um, evokes is the life story of uh, a retired, an old soldier named Joseph Collette, uh, or Collett. He's He has been a postman. He was a soldier. He was wounded in the Boer War. Uh, he lost two sons in World War One, and his wife and daughter in the Blitz of World War Two, and as a poor child, he endured terrible privation. Do you have comments on the old soldier's story? I, this one meant a whole lot to me. I really felt this. I was very, very close to my grandfather, or mm-hmm. my grandparents in general, but my grandfather, and <clears throat> I really identified with. Um, Nurse Jenny's fondness for him and how she kind of, you know, got close to him because she missed her own grandfather and how his story just brought another period in history to life. And I don't know, this part really made me feel like, I mean, war is so horrible and every single soldier endures something so awful. And every single soldier has a similar story to Mr. Collette. Mm-hmm. Everybody endured pain and loss and had to leave somebody. Maybe they lost their own family. Like, every house, that every single soldier has an, an, a story. Mm-hmm. And he was just one. 
Yeah. And 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 look what she brought out in him by just showing care. Yeah. And just a little and then just the the conditions with which he under which he lived with the bugs on the walls and the the urine smell and just how gross everything was. Like I felt all of that because I've I've bared bore witness to similar situations and you have to like let your compassion supersede your repulsion, you know? Um but I just all of that was so real to me. It, it just I felt it. I felt this character. I felt him and I I don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, he, she makes you feel him, really. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and she does. I mean, you talked about about war, and I, I loved the moments when he is drawn in by a certain amount of glory, you know. He, and and he, doesn't, it, he doesn't stick with it, but that he is recruited. He's a... He's a teenager with no work. I think he's 15, right, mm-hmm. when he starts out. And uh, he finds a sergeant comes and walks up and starts talking to him and then takes him out and buys him food and drink. And uh, the next thing you know, uh, Joe had been fitted up with full uniform and boots. He looked exceedingly handsome in the scarlet jacket and black trousers. And he gazed at his reflection with barely suppressed joy. He has a, He's been given a shilling and a travel warrant for to go, go uh, get on the train the next day or so and go and report uh, to Aldershot to start training. Uh, Joe marched all the way back to Poplar, his newly acquired military swagger getting stronger with every step. His buttons gleamed, his boots shone, his red tunic dazzled the eye. Older men touched their caps, people stood aside. Uh, girls looked at him. Uh, a soldier's life is the life for me. He marched, he goes, into the, uh, goes to see his mother into the court of Alberta buildings. The chatter stopped, and a gasp of admiration went up from the women at the wash tubs. But his mother had her back to him. Turning round, she gazed uncomprehendingly at the figure in the doorway for a few minutes, seconds, as though she didn't recognize him. Then a low moan escaped her lips, rising to a terrible scream, and she fainted. Uh, and, of course, she says, um, my eldest, my son, my comfort, my hope, a soldier. They draw them in, young men, thousands of them every year. Cannon fodder, they call them, the scum of the earth. They draws them in to die. Uh, and you, Facts. Yeah, yeah. But you, you, get, uh, you get the juxtaposition of that. You get, a, you get a, of that, those moments of glory that allow them to draw them in. Uh, there's another, when they're out in Africa, he talks about marching along to the sound of bagpipes mm-hmm. and how inspiring that is and how that keeps you going. And then I think like on the next page, he talks about how that makes the, the British troops just get cut to pieces because they are marching out in the open in the, in the traditional way and getting, uh, getting shot from the, from the side. Apparently the, about yeah, apparently the Boers uh, took, some, took a leaf from... Uh, supposedly that's what happened in the Revolutionary War as well, right? I don't know. Uh, oh, I remember having read that, that, you know, uh, fighting, fighting from, you know, hiding, fighting, uh, doing, doing, shooting, shooting from... Uh, from, from some kind of barrier as opposed to just marching out into the field and, and annihilating each other. So stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but but he is uh, the feelings of glory always contrast with the waste of life. Um, yeah, and you mentioned her 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 fondness for him and what it kind of what it does for him. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and he he was just sitting there languishing, rotting, literally rotting because of the 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 wounds on his legs, and um, you know just just a little bit of love a little mm. bit of care and a little bit of compassion just brought out gave him new life at the end of his life yeah and it makes me emotional just talking about it like yeah. there's so many people even now who are in the same situation yeah i thought of that too and and nobody will ever know because they can't afford health care or <laughs> You know, yeah. or nobody visits them, or whatever. I just it just kills me. What did you make of the the his almost supernatural appearance to uh, at the end? Well, I know I know you 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 uh, have some awareness of that. This is it's fifteen. She says fifteen or twenty years later. I think she's not with him when he dies, right? No, and and. Uh, and he gets warehoused in, a, in an old folks' home. Oh. But that, yeah, that's another story that used to be a workhouse. Uh, um, it, I was happily buried. My daughter's growing up. I'd not thought of him in years. I woke in the middle of the night, and he was standing at the side of my bed. He was as real as my husband sleeping beside me. He was tall and upright, but looked younger than when I had known him, like a handsome man of about 60 or 65. He was smiling, and then he said, you know the secret of life, my dear, because you know how to love. And then he disappeared. Yeah. yeah. That makes me cry. Yeah. Um, I think that that's right. I think that that's true. Yeah. That we are here to love. And also that the dead do appear to give messages because mm-hmm. I, I have experienced that. And anyway, it was just such a powerful way to end the book. I 100% believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that to be true. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it was just, it, like I said, at the very end of this book, it was a 4.5 for me stars. And that last sentence brought it up to five. Like it just uh, like sucked the breath out of my face. Uh, um, so yeah. Uh, that's really, the really sentence good. that brought it up to a five. That's, 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 that's it. And you don't know. I mean, and, and it's kind of, it seems just even petty to say, oh, was that him really appearing? Or was that her own uh, memory of of him and and how she had uh, and and how she had been valuable to him and cared for him coming up who, who cares doesn't you know? matter it yeah. doesn't matter i mean if, i thousand percent believe that that happened okay so. all right uh the second section and i the reason i talk, i think you probably can see the reason why i'm talking about them out of order is that the the first and third are these kind of long mm-hmm. uh stories of um of these people's lives and you get some of that in the second section which is about sister monica joan because you get something of her life as well she's still on this on the series by the way you said you stopped uh, oh my gosh yeah yeah um i vaguely remembered this story from watching mm-hmm. the show so. yeah yeah and we talked a little bit already i think about the relationship between the series and the books mm-hmm. uh which i think is is I think they did. I think they did a very, a very good job. But I, I read some reviewer who said, "Well, you know, uh, how did she? What's what are these long stories about these other people and so on?" And, and the books came first. You know, um, this is a different kind of book. Um, I, I did feel like the uh, 
the characters in the book are a little edgier and not quite as always as nice uh, as the they appear in the TV series, uh, like Sister Monica Joan. Uh, Sister Monica Joan was wildly eccentric to the point of being outrageous. There was no telling what she would say or do next, and she frequently gave offense. Sometimes she could be sweet and gentle, but another time she was gratuitously spiteful. Poor Sister Evangelina, large and heavy and not gifted with ber- verbal brilliance, suffered most dreadfully from the astringent sarcasm of her sister in God. Sister Monica <laughs> Joan had a powerful intellect and was poetic and artistic, and she was quite insensitive to music. Uh, she manipulated others unscrupulously in order to get her own way. She was haughty and aristocratic in her demeanor, yet she had spent 50 years working in the slums of the London Docklands. How does one account for such a contradiction? How does one? Yeah. I think, well, in England, one's birth is mm-hmm. who you are. That is your station in life. So if you choose to work with the, the poor, you know what I mean? It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, you mean, in other words, you're still, she, she you're still an aristocrat, absolutely. even though... Absolutely. Oh, they okay. are so weird and big on that over there. It's bizarre. Are they still? I thought, oh they'd, my I God. thought they'd get over it. No, uh, no, no. It is so still there. It is mm. so weird. Mm. But whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, so, other thoughts. Do you, did, did you think that the the characters in the book seem a little... A little less soft than the characters in, the, or do you not remember the the, the Honestly, series well enough to to say? I can't remember it well enough. I felt I the few characters I do remember, like Jenny, Chummy, Trixie, mm. I, um, the the main nun. I felt like they were accurately Sister portrayed. Julianne. Whatever, said, yeah, yeah, whoever I think Jenny that, Agatha played. Yeah, um, yeah, like I felt like they were really good adaptations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. I, I couldn't say. Okay. There's a scene, for instance, uh, when Fred Buckle, and Fred Buckle, at least in here, is, I mean, one of the things is he's skinny and the, and the actor is quite portly. He's, he's still a regular, by the way. Uh, he and his, did he get married in the, in the, in the ones you remember? I can't remember. He marries the, the woman Haberdasher, and they have all, all kinds of things. But this is the, and, and I can't, I think I have to, I have to read why Fred is laughing at the girls mm. uh, because it's again it's it's so vivid. Uh, Jenny has been to visit the old soldier, and she has had um, she's it, it's it's the first time she's visited him at night, um, and she's surprised to see a large area of the chimney breast was black, about two feet in an irregular circular shape. In addition, in addition, it seemed to be moving slightly or shimmering like oil on a damp surface. And she goes closer. The moving mass was thousands of bugs. Ugh. I had heard that Alberta buildings were infested with house bugs, but had not seen them before. Uh, they were behind the plaster of the walls and ceilings where they crept along, infesting every level and every flat. They came out at night attracted by the heat, and it was impossible to get rid of them. Uh, only with the demolition of the buildings where they destroyed. Um, and she's 
genuinely horrified. Uh, Do we think these are roaches? I, I couldn't get an idea of what kind of bug it was. I, I asked Christopher. Either. Yeah. I haven't seen I wondered too about many that roaches too. in England. Mm. Um, so I, I don't know. I thought of them as roaches just because those are the bugs that I hate worst. Yeah, yeah. You know. Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. But apparently they do, they do no harm and they don't bite. Uh, but I don't know, care. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't care. You know. But any mass of like undulating. Oh yeah. Oh god. Yeah, I know yeah, it's visceral. Yeah. It's disgusting. And the the the, the women are. Uh, I would and, seize if I was in her yeah. spot. I'd be like, I gotta go. Okay. Well, she doesn't want to go back there, although she forces herself to do so. Right. Right. Uh, or is forced to do so uh, by her. Uh, and um, but the the. The girls, and they do come across kind of as girls here. You, when you, in the depiction of them, I thought in this section, some of like the scene where they're playing Monopoly and getting a little drunk on sherry. Mm-hmm. You know, you realize that they're pretty young. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but they, 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 uh, they're horrified. And Chummy says, I, "I love Chummy's vocabulary, which we're about yeah. to talk about." Great Jehoshaphat, how perfectly ghastly! What did you do, actually? And at this point. <laughs> Fred, the handyman, dies laughing and says, uh, that's a, a lot of, what well, a lot of fuss about a few bugs, you know, and makes fun of Chummy, which is a little, seems a little kind of unkind. Um, do you, th- she does a lot, lot in here with dialect and vocabulary. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. I do too. I wondered, I wondered if, if it was her musician's ear. You know, I mean, she is a, spent many years as a musician, and I because she does a lot, a lot more than, a, a lot more than you might expect. Although maybe I, maybe it's because it's British. Uh, I don't think has it has anything to do with that. I feel like that's just London. Hmm. I mean, the accents, the the just. The difference in accents over there is huge, mm-hmm. and what she presents here is accurate. Really, still. Okay. Um, and neighborhood to neighborhood, the accents mm-hmm. yeah. can yeah. be different. Yeah. I had trouble with that, I have to say. In other words, I couldn't... When, when I read her dialect, I didn't hear the Cockney voice in my head, which is probably just because I haven't heard enough, Cock- enough Cockney speech. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I read somebody who's done African-American dialect, then I can, I can hear it. Right. You know, right. Uh, but this I, this I could not. Um, so I wondered if you would, if, if you, who, <laughs> in, in the reading of uh, oh A Christmas God. Carol, oh uh, had, had the most authentic accent, uh, this is uh, I, this is what I said. If you have another passage that you'd, you'd rather, I'll you'd, do it. I you'd, don't care. You'd whatever. rather try. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is a uh, a coster named Cakey Crumb, who is on? I'm on 186. I hope that's the right one. Okay. Um, it's the coster named Cakey Crumb, and he is oh Mon- Monica Joan is on trial uh, for possibly stealing some valuable jewels because that people know that she actually has been stealing small uh, items from the market. People have seen her. Um, and so he is, because she's on trial, uh, Keiki. Um, I've always been known as Keiki with, with a, now, with, it's, it's spelled W-I-V, you know, and I can't, I can't make it, you know, with a name like Crumb, what, what, what you expect, I can't. Yeah. All right. <laughs> see. See if you could see. See if you could do cakey for me. 
Are you at the bottom of one? No, I'm in the, the uh, I'm at one one eighty six in the a kind of fat paragraph in the middle. I can hand you what I've got if you're if you're maybe the I'm a businessman part. Uh yeah. Well, I want to say before I read this that I do not have a good British accent. Mm-hmm. And my husband said to me, you sound like Dick Van Dyke from Mary Poppins when you try. <laughs> so I preface this reading with that. Okay. So we're talking about the I'm a businessman. Uh-huh. Okay, I haven't read this ahead of time, so y'all are going to have to forgive me. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I'm a businessman, managing director of my own company. Been it, been it since I was 14 with a, <laughs> with a break for the war when I was in the Merchant Navy. Horrible it was. Real horrible. Never liked it, Walter. I never. We was torpedoed and hundreds of men was frowning, was frowning Walter. Half of them drowned. Horrible it was to hear them cry for help, poor swords. Poor swords. And another time we was... Hey, that's pretty good. Well. That's pretty good. I got, I got with uh, and horrible and, uh, you know... I want to say something really quick. So sure. a true Cockney. So the Cockney accent, um, and I, Christopher told me, my husband's a Londoner, so he knows this. Mm-hmm. Um, to be a proper Cockney, you had to be born within sounding distance of the Bow Bells. Bow, right. of course, being a part of London. Um, now it's the financial district. But back then, it was like the working, uh, working class area. So anybody around there was mm. could call themselves a Cockney. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah. I just realized I forgot. I for, didn't I forget to do our second break? Did we? Do, okay. I believe I. I believe I did. Cool, blimey. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess I. I guess I better do it now, and then we can talk a little more about uh, accents. Okay. Oh my God. Join us for classic rides on El Camino Real. Taking place at historic Hayes County Courthouse in San Marcos, Texas, on the last Sunday of every month from 10 a.m. till 2 p.m. Classic rides on El Camino Real will be a showcase of cool local cars, bikes, and trucks. They'll also have a variety of food vendors and a swap meet offering something for everyone. For more info or to register to show your cool ride, navigate your browser to HayesClassicRides.com Bookmarked is brought to you in part by the Whitliff Collections. Subscribe to our email list today and stay in the know about all the great events, exhibitions, and news happening at the finest collection of literary, photography, and music holdings in the Southwest. The Whitliff Collections is free and open to the public. We're located on the seventh floor of the Alkeck Library at Texas State University. For more information, please contact us at thewhitliffcollections.txstate.edu. All right, welcome back to Bookmarked on kzsm.org, 104.1 FM, uh, and uh, your true community radio station, where we are talking about Shadows of the Workhouse by Jennifer Worth, the second book of the, the Call the Midwife trilogy with Jennifer Cabay, and I'm talking about the use of dialect and uh, and vocabulary in here, which uh, we were both agreeing is something that makes it very accurate to the uh, sort of early 20th century Britain that's that's being depicted. And you say people, do people still talk like yes, this? Yes, they do, absolutely. Yeah. You can still hear it, and you can still hear the uber-posh yeah. accent. Say that, say that again. You can still hear the uber-posh accent, like the mm. one that Chummy has. That's oh. still very... You got to go to a certain part of London to hear it. 
but yes, it is still oh, could you there? Could you give us a little because chummy <laughs> is uh, mostly the uh, she had a. Uh, she she had if you if you could go to 148 and maybe give us uh a little <laughs> it's funny just reading it um a little bit of chummy on on 148 or the bottom of 149 um chummy has a what what they would call now a posh accent mm-hmm. uh, Jennifer calls it a plummy accent I mean, it, again, I am not good at this, no, okay. but I can. You're better than I am. Well, that's, that's, I, that's, that doesn't take much. I will say that, you know, the posh, being reserved is, being reserved is part of like the upper crust. What, mm. what, one mustn't show mm-hmm. too much emotion because it's, mm-hmm. it's unsightly, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um, so I, I think count, Chummy's countenance would have factored into this as much as yeah. what she's saying. Um, you know. So, this is a council of war, and I'm with you, old horse. The important thing is to protect Sister Monica Joan from the machinations of the constabulary. What? Mum's the word, I say. What ho? Not a syllable. Lip sealed. <laughs> and then she would have, like, sort of dashed from the room, as she did, you know, yeah. in her portrayal. Yeah. But, like, they're very, like, they're, they're very, oh, hurrah. They, mm-hmm. they don't get too excited about anything. They're just sort of, oh, splendid, mm. frightfully mm. nice. Mm. And, you're, and you look at them, because they really do talk like this, and you're like, are you serious? But mm. they are. <laughs> well, she has lots of, lots of kind of modifiers and uh, throws in little things. like the, But the door's locked, old bean. Old What's bean. going on? <laughs> old bean. What's going on? Something rummies afoot, or I'm a brass monkey. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there, there's a, a, a rich kind of... Uh, vocabulary that she gets, and of course, uh, the accent and the. We, I think we have to say that you know, in, in praise of the series, that the actress was wonderful. Oh my God, yeah. she stole the show. Yeah, uh, that put her on the map. That show. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what happened to her after because she didn't. She did not stay. Camilla Fortis, Fortescue Chum Chamelli Chum, Brown. Chumsley. Where? What page are you on? I'm on 148. Yeah. Um, yeah. She, rep- she had a voice that sounded like something straight out of a comedy, and she was excessively tall, uh, which so cost well her. And, she, and because she is tall and rather awkward, she has not succeeded in the life that she, to which she was born, mm. but has chosen instead to do this. Uh, uh, other things that you'd like to bring up about the book? No. <sighs> No, I I just really I enjoyed it. I I it was worth the wait, and mm. it will make it to staff picks at the mm-hmm. library. I feel like this is important history. You know. Yeah. Oh, certainly. Yeah. It is. It is. It is history in a sense. I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad you put it that way. Uh, I as mean, a matter of fact, t- this sort of history is our most if accurate history. I think it's you know oral testimony it's jennifer nurse jennifer bore witness to these things and so this is this paints a picture of what people went through as opposed to like a history book which mm-hmm. is a lie told by the victors right so usually like, is i mean you know what i mean so this is like these are real people real situations um i i, I will tell you that i thought this was going to be a lot darker than it was this book was i thought my mother my mother-in-law cried and mm. and I expected something a lot darker a lot sadder but 
I don't know, maybe I'm desensitized. Is the, well, there's a lot of, and maybe it's worth thinking about this for a minute, because there's a lot of really dark stuff. I mean, what happens to Jane, who is beaten and locked up and, and really almost permanently traumatized by her treatment in the workhouse, uh, what happens the end of uh, the old soldier's life when he winds up in kind of warehoused in this old folks' home and they neglect his... But, you know, there's really horrible stuff, but, there, yeah, but you're right. There is something uh, But don't hopeful. you... Don't you... I mean, like, my husband has stories of sadistic teachers, mm. you know? Um, you know, and I... Who doesn't know an old person that suffered in, in, in an old folks' home? Like who yeah. hasn't who hasn't seen that and felt that and so these are really identifiable human conditions whether it's and I know it took place in the 30s and 40s or whatever but it's like it, we know what this feels like mm-hmm. to, in some respect and yeah. English American it doesn't matter like yeah I think you're certainly right I mean we could certainly identify but I also think that there's something about the resilience so many of these characters when you think about it are in some ways resilient. Even the the old soldier who, uh, when Jenny visits him in this place, she she manages to take him. He's, he's, he's not allowed to smoke, which he likes to do, but he said, oh, he can smoke on the balcony, but he doesn't know where it is, but she finds it for him and takes him out there. And he takes such great pleasure in being able to smoke his pipe. That, you know, and little, yeah. that people, these people are incredibly, often incredibly resilient, uh, that they manage somehow despite a lot of difficulties to uh, to appreciate to appreciate life to appreciate he appreciates these little little visits from this nurse you know that's uh, also a very british trait though really? too i find that yeah. just keep keep calm carry on like let's just get on with it like i to me like british people born and bred british people like to me that's a collective energy mm. they just get on with things yeah they don't grumble it co- it comes out in the in in the series, and something else in the series that, as I say, I've always really admired uh, is that here they are after World War II, devastated, you know, with build, whole buildings bombed. I remember the first time I visited London was in 1960, and I remember oh, wow. walking down the street and looking at something and thinking, that's a bombed church. Wow. You know, and I, I had a hard time getting my mind around that. Uh, wow. that there it was, and people were there was still a certain amount of privation, although they were already coming coming out of it. But when this this these books are set, and when this series first the series first started, you know, they were they still had ra- food. Their food was rationed. Mm-hmm. You know, they were in terrible shape, and yet they decided that they were going to have universal health care. I just that just you know, I, I have to I have to admire those people for mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I do. Uh, oh, one other one other tiny detail that I just thought was funny, uh, since we've got, I think, three minutes or something like that. Um, there's a, a passage when uh, Jenny is talking to the old soldier, and they're talking about uniforms, and he describes, he is describing his training and how he, uh, how meticulous he has to be about his about his uniform, which is generally the, the case in, in military everywhere. And she compares her own uh, nurse's uniforms. Um, the hems of our dresses had to be, uh, 244, the hems of our dresses had to be 15 inches from the floor, no more, no less. Uh, 
Aprons had to be pinned at an exact point above the bosom, adjusted to the precise length of the dress. Shoes had to be black lace-up of a specific style. Stockings were black with seams. A uh, full uniform had to be worn all the time. Uh, and they talk about uniforms and discipline and so on. And mm-hmm. he says uh, uh, oh, the, the, that the men need discipline, but I wouldn't have thought it was necessary for women, though, would you? But I maintain that nurses always look lovely, and so I approve of the uniform. <laughs> There was no doubt in my mind that the nurse's uniform of the early and middle 1900s was just about the sexiest thing ever invented. That stuck with me, too. Yeah. I didn't Google it. Nothing surpassed it for allure. I was not the only young nurse to be acutely conscious of a heightened sex appeal when in in uniform. And maybe it's the black stockings or uh, that the dresses are not maybe not form-fitting, but uh, kind of hourglass figure. It, uh, student nurses could not marry. Uh, men were not allowed in in the barrack-like nurses' homes, and a, a nurse who smuggled one in would be dismissed if she was caught. All this was to repress our sexuality, yet we were dressed up like sex kittens. With exquisite <laughs> irony, in today's permissive society, when anything goes and nurses can do whatever they like sexually, the uniform has changed beyond all recognition, and the average nurse now looks like a sack of potatoes tied in the middle often wearing trousers instead of sexy black stockings. I love it. Yeah. That really stuck with me as well. Yeah, that's, that's very funny. Um, How many stars did you give it? Uh, well, I don't usually give stars. You know but, I make you give stars. Oh, oh you make me give stars. Uh, well, why wouldn't I? Uh, I could give it five stars, I guess. Why, why wouldn't I? Uh, I guess because, because I'm... If I wouldn't, it would be because I was having trouble classifying it. You know, you called it what um, narrative narrative nonfiction. Narrative nonfiction. It's my favorite kind of nonfiction. Okay, that but that's not uh, that's not something I'm familiar with so, exactly. So narrative nonfiction is nonfiction that reads like fiction. It okay. almost it's almost feels like once upon a time. It's so rich in mm-hmm. visuals and in dialogue that you feel like you're reading a story as opposed to history mm-hmm. which can read more like a textbook if you're not careful yeah I, um so I, like I, authors um who did the devil in the white city who's that oh, author? oh yeah i've read that too uh that, I, I can't think of who the I author know. is either that guy yeah that guy <laughs> uh, i can't believe it escapes my librarian brain but that guy um, um anyway he is the master of it um, he tells history like a once upon a time, mm-hmm. and people lap it up. Yeah. And I think that's what she does. It's a little bit drier, but mm-hmm. I think that's her as opposed to, you know, but that's, this is narrative nonfiction in my, yeah. you know, yeah. slash well, memoir. Well, as narrative nonfiction, it gets five stars. Okay. Okay. Then, uh, well, it's technically a memoir, but whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Te- techni- technically a memoir, but but she certainly was a, was a fine writer, and I'm glad that they've, I hope the manuscript that they've unearthed uh, and published uh, is leads up to it. Well, I think now we actually are out of time. You have been listening to Bookmarked on uh, KZSM 104.1 FM in San Marcos, Texas, and KZSM.org in, in the whole world, uh, where uh, I have been talking with Jennifer Cabay about Jennifer Worth's narrative uh, memoir. What did you say? Nar- narrative nonfiction. Narrative nonfiction Te- memoir. 
uh, Shadows of the Workhouse, which uh, we heartily recommend. The, the two copies that are sitting right here are going to be in the library pretty soon. Uh, and you can find my copy on Staff Picks, and I hope everybody has a library card. <laughs> All right. See you soon. Thank you. Okay. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you again, Jennifer, and thank you for listening. <laughs>